All right, brothers and sisters, um, so good to see you and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. As we continue our series in Revelation, our teaching today will be in um, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So it's the whole, the whole chapter. Remind ourselves where we are in Revelation. This is, the book is called Revelation. Uh, it is the revelation of Jesus to, uh, revelation of Jesus, or meaning about Jesus and from Jesus to uh, John. John being one of the disciples of Jesus. Can you imagine, kind of put yourself in John's shoes here and try to be familiar with the person uh, of John. He was a disciple of Jesus, followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry for several years. Um, he was a witness to Jesus in all of his miraculous events. He was a witness to the works of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And he was a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus. Can you imagine that? But he was also a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He's the oldest survivor of the original disciples. And so he's, he has seen a lot. His friends, closest friends and other colleagues in ministry who were, was appointed by Jesus to go out. Uh, his friends James and Peter, kind of the inner circle, were both martyred. And he is old and he is still alive at this point. He is locked up in prison. He is exiled on the island of Patmos off of the western coast of Turkey. But it's there that he sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation. And he gets a picture of the resurrected Jesus and he gets a, a word from Jesus that says, even though you're bound in chains and you're imprisoned on this island, uh, my word is not bound. You will write this word out to these churches. And so in chapters two and three, we have a message from Jesus to the messengers of the churches through John. He's told to write those down. And in chapters four and five, we have uh, another vision that John is given of Jesus. He is invited to go up into the heavenly throne room. And he's going to see what is going to soon take place. And so with that in mind, I would like for us to read that whole vision. We looked at chapter four two weeks ago, which is actually just the first half of this vision. But I want for us to, to, to know the context, to feel and experience the whole vision of chapter five along with chapter four. If you would follow along as I read Revelation chapter four and five. God calls his church to read aloud the words of scripture as part of our worship. And so uh, let's do that this morning. So Revelation chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, 
a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the reading of God's word. So chapter 5 is actually a second act of this opening vision in heaven that encompasses chapters 4 and 5 that we just read. In chapter 4, we are introduced to the one who was seated on the throne. And praise and worship is given to the one seated on the throne as the sovereign creator over everything. If you noticed, and I noticed this even as I was out loud reading, how many times, I think it's like 17 or something times, the word throne appears. Signifying the sovereignty and the sovereign power and control of the one who is seated on the throne. And that he was sovereign, and they're praising him because not only is he sovereign, but they're praising him as the creator of all things. As it says in verse 11, for worthy are you, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In chapter 5, we're in the very same setting. But the focus shifts a little from the one who's seated on the throne to a lamb. And praise and worship is given to the lamb in chapter 5. Same vision in two acts. Same basic event, worship in heaven, but in two parts. Chapter 4, the worship of the one seated on the throne as creator. And in chapter 5, the worship of the one, the lamb, as redeemer. And so we want to look at this passage, chapter 5, and I want to explore three different scenes that occur in chapter 5. And here are the three scenes. And I'll give you all three at the beginning. If you're taking notes, you can write those down. In verses 1 through 4, we have the scroll and its seals. In verses 5 through 7, we have the sacrificed Savior. And in verses 8 through 14, we have a celestial song. So you have the scroll and its seals, the sacrificed Savior, and the celestial song. So the first one. The first scene is the scroll and its seals. Chapter four ends with the one who is seated on the throne and praise being given to him. And chapter five, John looks and he notices that there's something in that the one seated on the throne in his hand. Verse one, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. The Greek word here is biblion. It's where we get the word Bible, and it means book. It's the Greek word for book, and books in those days, actually uh, in the early period here, most of the books would have been in scroll-like form. So they would have taken papyrus or other kinds of materials, and they would have written on it, and then they would have rolled it up. And um, there were some books that were in kind of what we'd call folios, which is like what we have today. You know, they're kind of bound at the edges and you have pages. Um, same word used for both. 
Uh, but it seems to suggest that what he means here is a scroll. So this kind of scroll that is written because of the way it would be sealed with the seven seals. And it is written on the inside and it's written on the outside. And as I said, it's sealed with seven seals. Here's a, here's a picture. Uh, it's a replica of something that archaeologists have discovered that date to roughly around this time. And that is this papyrus, kind of like an early form of paper. And uh, it is got writings on the inside and you see it's kind of folded up. It's not a burrito. Kind of looks like a burrito to me, but many of you are like, well, of course you would notice a burrito, you know. Um, and so that's a scroll and it's rolled up and then it's wrapped with this twine or some string and that's like clay. Um, and you've seen this on like certain kinds of invitations where there's a wax sealing over the, the opening of the envelope and then there would have like a signet ring would put on it and so that would seal these up. So here's one with four seals on it. And so if this gives you a little picture of what it is that John sees in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne, picture these with seven of these seals on it. And so this is kind of reminiscent, if you think about uh, where is this kind of in the Old Testament of a seal in a book that's kind of sealed up? There's a couple of places that come to mind, and you can write these down and look, look these up on your own if you, if you wish. Uh, but in Daniel chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 29... You have a description of a, a divine book, let's say, that is sealed up with these sort of seals. Daniel chapter 12 says this. It's this the angel of the Lord speaking to Daniel, but then it's the Lord uh, speaking to him. But you, don't, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So here's a, a, a book. That's been closed and sealed up. And a little few verses later, it says, but go your way, Daniel, for the words that he had just given him, the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. The passage in Isaiah says, and the vision of all of this that had been given to Isaiah has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read it saying, read this, he says, I cannot for it's it's sealed. And in both of those contexts, that is a word of like divine pronouncements of judgment. And so here, th that should kind of come to your mind here, is you have this scroll in the hand of the one who's seated on, seated on the throne, and it's sealed with seven seals. This book is kind of the, the purpose and plan of God that has pronouncements of judgment on it. And what we read in the rest of Revelation from chapter 6 through 22, um, which he summarizes is what must take place after this in chapter 4, verse 1. These are, are the content of what is in those, those scrolls. And so those are going to be uh, an unveiling of the plan of God to, to judge the wicked and then to redeem his his people. And so immediately you're given this picture. You have the sovereign Lord of history, who's the creator of all the universes, receiving praise as creator. And he's unveiling his plan. But the Lord himself does not open it. Look at what happens. He says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
But John doesn't see or hear a response. He says, and no one is worthy to open it. At first look, he says, there's, there's no one who seems to step forward. And he makes this, notice kind of the, universi- the universal nature of this. There's no one in heaven, verse 3, or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And then John's response is, and I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. In John's mind, God's, God's plan doesn't look as though it's going to be carried out. At least according to this vision thus far. But then he gets this word of assurance. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we have... Now the appearance of the sacrificed Savior in verse, verses 5 through 7. There is one who is worthy. And the elder comforts John, says, do not weep, because there is one who is worthy. And notice how the sacrificed Savior is depicted. He says, Uh, He gives him a couple of titles here in verse five. The elder does the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David is the one who has conquered. These two titles have uh, Old Testament references. These are prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. We won't look at them now, but if you want to look at those, those are uh, in Genesis chapter 49. There's kind of this prophecy given to uh, um, to Judah, the tribe of Judah, that the scepter will never depart your tribe and that you're kind of like this lion cub, kind of, he says in there. And so this lion from the tribe of Judah was a title that was kind of applied to the one who was going to come, the promised one sent from the Lord God to reign on earth. And then he's also described as the root of David. This reference you can see in Isaiah chapter 11. That this branch. So David being the mighty king of the people of Israel. And the God giving a promise to to David that one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever and ever. This is these are prophecies given about Jesus. And so these titles then, these words of assurance given from the elder is, uh, to, to John is, hey, this is, that, this is that Messiah. There is one who is worthy. It's the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And he has conquered. He is the victorious warrior. He has overcome. And so it's interesting when John hears these words, behold, a lion, you would expect to turn around and see a lion. But in verse six, John turns around and he sees in the very center of that uh, group of 
heavenly worship that's happening around the heavenly throne room, he sees a lamb. So a lion and a lamb. There's a sharp contrast between what John hears the elders say and what he turns around and actually sees. And both of these images are the point. He hears the conquering ruler, the king, the mighty warrior. He has conquered. He is able to open the scrolls. And John turns and he doesn't see a mighty warrior carrying a sword, riding a horse. At least not yet. He turns and it says he sees a lamb. A lamb is a picture of meekness and of gentleness. And this is exactly what Jesus is like, isn't he? Jesus, during his ministry, called the heavy laden and the burdened to come to him and to find rest. Because, what does he say about himself? For I'm gentle and I'm lowly of heart. Jesus, though he enters Jerusalem as a king the week that he is crucified, he nevertheless comes riding humble and mounted on a donkey. So it makes sense that he sees this, this lamb, this picture of gentleness and meekness. But it's not just the, the meekness and gentleness of the lamb that's conveyed here. It's a lamb standing as slain. This being an allusion to the use of lambs, in particular to the Passover lamb. The lamb whose blood was the protection for the Israelites during the 10th plague while they were uh, in Egypt. The 10th and final plague that was descending over the firstborn in all of Egypt. And when the angel of the Lord came through all of Egypt... And he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the houses. He passed over. So a lamb that was slain was to kind of convey this idea of the one whose blood was poured out so that judgment can be passed over them. Also brings to mind for me, Isaiah 53, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, is silent. Again, the gentleness and the meekness, but also of, of sacrifice. This isn't the first time Jesus is pictured as this kind of lamb. Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb being sacrificed. When Jesus first comes out into the wilderness during the ministry of John the Baptist, who is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and he's baptizing those, a baptism of repentance for their sins. John sees him and he says these words twice. It's recorded in John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of these are pictures and images of what was to come in Jesus' ministry. Of his sacrificial death. That accomplishes redemption for people. And is a picture of his victory. His victory and the victory of God's people too. Notice what it says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. 
that the reason why Jesus is worthy to open this scroll, they sing, is because you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by, by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and every language and people and nation. Not only does he ransom them, he makes them a kingdom and he makes them priests to their, to their God. So the slain lamb here then represents the image of, uh, of a conqueror who is mortally wounded while defeating the enemy. And so you have uh, this lamb that is slain, but he's also standing too. Again, notice what it says in verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Again, returns to the image of the victorious Messiah, the victory of Christ. But notice how the victory of Christ comes through an apparent defeat. And so because of this, Jesus is worthy to unveil the plan and purposes of the one who sits on the throne. Why is he worthy? Because of his sacrifice. He conquered evil and death at the cross. He purchased and redeemed and ransomed people by his blood. And by his resurrection uh, is, receives this crowning victory. And then he makes a kingdom of all of his people who turn to him in faith. And he is the king. He's brought into the middle of this throne room. And he makes the subjects of his kingdom to reign with him. And because of his sacrifice as savior, he is victorious. So this is the, this is the irony that John is seeing and experiencing here. Jesus' victory comes through defeat. Strength comes through weakness. And now, what an encouragement that is to John's first audience and to us. Because this word is for us too. But think of what an encouragement that is first to John's audience. Remember writing to the seven churches, you had several of those churches who were experiencing persecution and some had even died for the faith. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus was speaking to those churches, calling for them, even in the midst of that, to be faithful to him. And right on the heels of the call for them to overcome, to be faithful to Christ, you get a picture of the conqueror who is slain. You get the picture of victory coming through apparent defeat. Life coming through death. Christ was victorious through suffering. This is an encouragement to them. Friends, this is an encouragement to us. The message to the church is that our victory will also come through suffering. The death and defeat of Christ in reality is a victory over Satan. Jesus' victory comes through defeat. And our victory will come through defeat too.
John doesn't have to weep anymore because this final victory has come. Notice what it says in verse 7. And he, this is the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And this leads to the celestial song of verses 8 through 14. A song of worship breaks out. And I say celestial because remember chapter 4 verse 1, where is this? It says, I saw a door open into heaven and there was a throne in heaven. There are 24 elders present. And again, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this conveys kind of the 12 tribes of Old Testament Israel and the 12 apostles of the church, meaning the whole people of God. Representatives, kind of angelic representatives of all of the people of God and the four living creatures representing all of the rest of animate creation. That's impressive. That should be an overwhelming image. To step into that kind of worship setting and to see the one seated on the throne and these elders with crowns and white robes that we are promised if we remain faithful. And the four living creatures. That's impressive enough. But look at what happens. As the song begins, John's vision starts to kind of expand. It's like he starts to see like the lights are coming on or something and he starts to see Oh, wait, there's more here. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A myriad would be a very large, indefinite number. It doesn't have a precise, you know, precise Calculation add to it. It's kind of sometimes tra- translated as countless or innumerable. Um, some have suggested it means like 10,000. And here, the way he's saying this is like, it's like 10,000, 10, 10,000s. Okay, we're talking millions and millions. And then he adds to this, and thousands of thousands. So picture that. Picture angelic beings numbering in the millions. How many of you have been to like a a large concert uh, or a sporting event uh, or something like that? What's the largest venue you've ever been in and seen? You know, 50,000 people, 60,000 people, higher. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to admit this. I actually, back in high school, I saw you two at the L.A. Coliseum. And they had said there were 98,000 people for a Joshua Tree concert. That was massive amount of people in one spot. That's nothing compared to what John sees, to what's happening in heaven now. Praise starts in this inter, inner circle and then around the throne with these angelic Elders and the four living creatures, and then it extends outward to fill the entire universe. That's that's what we're supposed to have in our mind. Why? Because there's one who's worthy to open the scroll. The celestial song starts to break out because there is one who is able, because of his sacrificial death, is able to conquer and be victorious. And notice the sevenfold tribute that's given here in verse 12. 
And this is what they were saying. Okay. Now there's been other tributes, uh, kind of acknowledgments of praise. You can see that in chapter one. You also see it here in chapter four. You know, verse eight of chapter four. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, this is a declaration of praise. Notice uh, what he is worthy to receive in verse 11. Worthy are you of chapter four, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. So he lists three there. Elsewhere, there's other places where they list four. Remember the, the number seven having some significance in Revelation, as we'll see. Notice the sevenfold tribute that the lamb receives in verse 12 of chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, let's count them, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Wow. Notice also, and this is very important, that the one seated on the throne, this is very important, you walk away from this morning and get, catch nothing else. Catch this at least. That the one who is seated on the throne, who is receiving all worship in chapter 4, shares his worship with the Lamb. Verse 13 of chapter 5. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing. The one who sits on the throne being the Lord God, who all throughout the Old Testament said, I alone am to be worshipped. I and no other. There is no other like me. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God and no other. And here he shares that worship with the Lamb. Why? Because they're one. Different persons... Again, what we would acknowledge that is a true foundational belief of the Christian faith is that we worship a triune God, not three gods, one God, one God who eternally exists as three separate and equal persons who know, love and glorify one another. And here you have the father sharing his worship with the son. Because they are one couple of reflections for us to close then. Again, this vision that John receives is a vision and it connects this word of encouragement that's given to the churches. Jesus is victorious through suffering. Jesus will come to conquer evil. That's, that's the kind of this point that we see that as we go through Revelation and we'll see the breaking of the scrolls, Jesus will conquer all evil. Jesus will come and vanquish all of God's enemies. He will vanquish and defeat all of those who are in rebellion against him. And, but before Jesus comes to do that, as we'll see in the end of Revelation... The things that are, are to come. Jesus comes to conquer evil by suffering on a cross. And there's a big span of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Between his suffering and victory on a cross and his ultimate victory in the defeat of all evil and his enemies. There's um, a problem I, I've, I've heard from numerous people 
and uh, from since I was in college, kind of a new Christian, and um, and and since then, numerous times, the one problem that some people have against the idea of God is that uh, there is the existence of evil. It's what's called the problem of evil, right? Maybe you've kind of wondered about this. Kind of goes along these lines. How can an all-powerful and all-good God allow evil? Clearly, evil exists in the world. How can an all-good and all-powerful God not wipe out evil? It's a good question. The Bible has an answer for it. Yes, God is all-good. And yes, God is all-powerful. But calling for God to wipe out evil... um, I think takes a great deal of courage. And here's why. And actually, maybe even takes a little bit of arrogance when you think about it. Because it assumes the one calling for God to wipe out the evil won't get wiped out, too. Right? If God wiped out all of evil, he would have to wipe out you. Kind of the irony behind that, right? Um, you won't believe God because he doesn't wipe out evil, but um, if he does wipe out evil, he'd have to wipe out you. And it, in fact, it is actually the very patience of God, the patience of God between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the mercy of God that allows you, this, this person, to stay alive to disbelieve. And notice also the demand for God to wipe out all evil is always other people's evil, right? It's like, well, why doesn't God wipe out the rapists and the murderers and all those things? But then Jesus comes and he says, well, you've had the commandments, you know, but says, says you should not commit adultery. Well, do you commit adultery? Anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully with, with lust in his heart, Jesus kind of ratchets this up. It's always, it's always other people's evil and sins. But have you? Have you? So I bring that up to to remind ourselves of this patience, this two-step process here in this redemption. You have uh, Jesus who comes to conquer evil, but he does it by taking that evil onto himself. He takes that sin onto himself and takes the punishment that that sin Deserves, which is death. That lamb dies in your place. The angel of death was passing over Egypt. What enabled the people to live? A lamb died in your place. This is why John sees this lamb. So, so why doesn't God wipe out evil? He has. He has, including yours, if only you would turn to receive the one who loves you. Christ is not slow in keeping his his promise. There is a plan, right? It's been sealed up in a book and sealed with seven seals. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. John sees it in the New Testament, and we're about to see it all unfold, how it's going to happen. There is a plan. Christ will come again. And it's his patience that allows you the opportunity to repent and to receive Christ. 
Apostle Peter writes that the day of the Lord is going to come. That final day, it's going to come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away in a roar, he says. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works done in it will be exposed. But right before he says all of that, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is why we have this gap of time. And it's because of this gap gap of time that the enemies of God will seek out and pursue and harm the enemies or the the people of God. And so this is the encouragement that that Jesus gives them. And this this is the second reflection here. Suffering. Enduring through tribulation. Here's a a quote. Let me kind of paraphrase this quote here. The death and defeat of Christ are in reality his victory over Satan. The Lamb's followers are to imitate the model of his ironic victory in their own lives. Jesus' followers, by enduring through tribulation... They will reign in an invisible kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah. They will exercise kingship in the midst of their suffering, just as Christ did from the cross. Christians are called to be conquerors by emulating in their own lives the triumph of Jesus. This refers to this as the as slain life. Friends, when John sees the victorious reigning king Jesus, he sees him standing as slain. Not as if he had been slain. The Greek's a little more precise. As slain. I mean, it had happened at a point of time and is continuing on and we still in the present kind of see Jesus in a slain life. And he says, And that's the destiny for us who would follow him to. Though the Christian's outer body is vulnerable to suffering and persecution, God has promised to protect the regenerated inner spirits of true saints. Friends, Jesus pulls back the, the curtain on this symbolic vision. He pulls back the curtain on what is really real and that There's a picture of a lamb standing as slain and he's there to exhort his people. He's there to exhort us to remain faithful, to follow the lamb and his paradoxical example. May we never compromise. May we never quit. May we endure the sufferings that we will experience in the this world with the final goal of inheriting a salvation that he has purchased for us. May we do that by keeping our eyes on the lamb who is standing as slain. So that if we are slain one day, we will stand with him. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father God, we, we thank you for giving us a sneak peek of the worship that takes place in your throne room in heaven. God, we thank you that through, through John, we, and the, the words that he used to, to express what it was he saw, that we can, we could see it. We thank you that John was able to see his friend and his master and his savior through the image and the picture of of a lamb as slain. God, help us to have that image burned into our minds. That in the same way that our Savior had to go through suffering to achieve victory, that he had to suffer death before life, that that picture will encourage us as we seek to follow him and that knowing through many tribulations, we have to go through many tribulations before we can enter into your kingdom. But thank you for giving us this vision. Thank you for sending the lamb to suffer and to take our sins. God, we ask that you would continue to fill us with your spirit so that he will bear fruit in our life as we focus on our Savior. In whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand for closing benediction? Now, brothers and sisters, as you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with you as you go. Thank you.